Hey everybody, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, the founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making keeps us hidden, and that in fact keeps us hidden from the world and from each other. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow. And while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Today is going to be something special. I've always been told to be flexible, to have fun, and just go with what happens. And my special guest is not here. But that's okay. We've got something in store for you today because you did what? You did the unthinkable, which may have given your life a different direction. And that's what we're going to talk about today because as I was preparing for my show, as I always do, I go onto YouTube and I find, you know, videos that my guests have done, and my guest, the, uh, Christy, Christy Rutherford, she will be back. Christy is one of those people that come and go in your life, and they just have such extraordinary energy, but when I was listening to her video this morning, one that she was talking to, former, she's a former Coast Guard officer, but she was talking to a group of Coast Guard folks, and so she was using the military lingo, which I understood, but she was talking about how she got so burned out with what she was doing and bullied in many spots. And we'll hear more about that story. But I was thinking about our lives and what have we done in our lives that we ourselves might have said, you did what? Or we ourselves might have listened to someone say to us, you did what? And why did you do that? And then we start questioning why do we do things and do we beat ourselves up over them or not or do we just do them because we will do them so I challenge you guys today that are listening to sit down for a minute and write five things that you have done that you yourself said why am I doing this or I did what and and just think about why did you do them and what's the effect it had on your life and then on a separate list, the same things that you said, why did I do this, or I did what, why, what did other people say about it? And did you listen to yourself when you did them, or did you listen to other people? I'm thinking if you did listen to other people, you probably didn't do them. And that's the thing. How can we live authentically and unapologetically with the things that we've done in our lives? And I started to laugh because some of the things that I've done that I said, you did what, came after big life uh, traumas or changes, specifically when, when my husband would lose. That was definitely a big, you did what. And I've learned a lot from that. But the one thing that we did a year after, that my daughter Jenny and I did a year after Lou died, is we went skydiving together. 
And although I had been in the Air Force, I never jumped out of a perfectly good airplane like one of my pilot friends described that adventure as. But it was something that Jenny and I chose to do together, and it was such a liberating, bonding, incredible experience that put me so out of my comfort zone that I've done it three times. <laughs> and it just makes me laugh to think about it because when I got pushed out of that plane, of course I had a guy strapped to my back, which was comforting. I screamed at 5,000 feet down, you know, or however long and far it was. I think we, were, we went up 10,000 that, that time. We went screaming down 5,000 feet, and I'll put pictures up when I do a video of this. And then we popped the parachute, and then it was silence. And it was so cool to look out at the Florida Everglades and, and some of the really expensive horse country homes that you never see from the ground. I hugged, and I'm thinking, you know what? If I can do that, I can do almost anything. And so today, I want you guys to think about those things that you did that say, made you say, I did what and how cool was that? And I want you to share. I want you to share your stories. So I have my sidekick, Dr. Tim McGinnis, the founder of the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams and Scars. And Tim, I know, has stories that are going to make us say, you did what? You know, and make himself say, you did what? But I want you to think about this because today is an open conversation about what you did that made you so excited that you did it. And I want you to, you know, come on and tell me those stories. But I'm going to put Tim on first because, okay, Tim, let's start it off. It's just a conversation, but you did what? <laughs> well... Um, in which chronological order do you think I should start? Most recent stupidity or going backwards in time? Hey, let's not classify it as stupidity. It was an adventure. So give me one that you, yeah. when, when I mentioned this to you, what's the first one that came to your mind? Well, I was thinking about something that happened last year, actually. Um, I had spent vast amounts of money and two years of my life developing business relationships in China. Signed a contract last year with a piano company of all things, even though I don't play musical instruments, but it was a $770 million deal. And got everything done, everyone happy, government approved it, etc. And then three months later, in late November of 2019, now keep in mind the timing is actually quite significant, they backed out of the deal and left me with my investment hanging pretty much in the wind. Um, of course, it was at that
Paul and Bill, and I was a senior research engineer at Atari, and one of the PC industry pioneers, and we licensed a piece of software from them. Uh, their company was called Personal Software, and after passing And just out of irony is what moved me to Miami because at the time I was working in Scotland commuting back and forth from San Francisco and when the Scottish situation came to an end I was supposed to move back to San Francisco and uh, my spouse at the time uh, I gave her three choices for three good jobs that I had one for a company in Los Angeles, another for 3M Corporation in, uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, and one with a startup here in Miami. And I did the, the final interviews with all three companies Guys, this is interactive today, so please write down your list of those five things that you said to yourself, I did what? And let's hear a few. Okay, guys, maybe we open should, to you. Maybe we should this put somebody Debbie. on the spot. Well, we're not going like to put them Debbie. on the spot, but Deb's coming on. So, Deb, go ahead. What have yeah. you done that you said, I did what? So, um, really, my life changing um, activity started when I was in my late 40s and I started riding a motorcycle. And um, my kids were in high school. Um, my ex-husband, uh, he always rode a motorcycle, but I had absolutely no interest. 
And then um, when our kids were older and I started riding on the back with him, um, I thought, this is kind of fun, but I want my own. (laughs) And so it changed my life. Uh, I never went through an empty nest when our kids were gone. Um, They'd say, Mom, are you going to be home this weekend? Nope, I'm out riding. And I have ridden my motorcycle, well, three of them now. Um, I've touched every lower 48 state on my motorcycle. And I've gone through, I did a solo trip through the desert of um, Arizona, California, um, up through Carson City, Nevada. That was probably one of my hardest trips. Um, I took another trip. This was back in my early days. I um, experienced all of these challenging trips, the confidence that got built up within me. And although, you know, I've built up all this confidence, I learned to take risks, you know. Um, Okay, I can do that. I can do that. Unfortunately, I think that that also had to do with my scam because, I felt like, you know, just like in motorcycling, every time you tell people, um, I ride a motorcycle, well, you know, I know somebody that got in an accident, you know, you shouldn't ride a motorcycle. (laughs) I felt the same way during the scam because I thought, you know what, nobody understands this, they're going to tell me not to do it. So you didn't listen? Well, I didn't tell people about the money part. Ah. Oh, after, yeah. after it happened, after it happened. Uh, so when you started riding motorcycles, now your family kind of was used to it because your, hu- your ex-husband did it. What did your friends say? Because I, I think well, of motorcycles and I'm going, eh. my husband had one too, and the best day of motorcycles for me with him was the day he got it and the day he got rid of it. And then I gave his helmet away. So that's usually the first thing people say, you ride a motorcycle? Because I don't look like I don't have tattoos. I don't have, you know, pure theory. I, I I just don't look like a motorcyclist. I'm short. People ask me, aren't you afraid? And I, I, or, and my friends too, you know, especially when they know I'm going to go by myself. My non-motorcycle friends, aren't you afraid? And I'll tell them, I'll say, you know what, before the scam anyway, I, I've learned that this is actually a very beautiful country and the people that I meet, which are mostly really good people, I meet at gas stations um, and you kick up a great conversation with them. You know, this country as a whole is full of beautiful people um and it's and it's a beautiful country too and the the thing i'm afraid of the most is what's the weather condition and what's the road conditions going to be it really wasn't the people i was afraid of so how did you prepare yourself to do that i'm sorry debbie what i was going to ask is you know one of the things that's interesting about motorcycles did you find that 
different than an automobile where you're riding in a cocoon, in effect. With a motorcycle, you have personal control over everything that you do. You're out there exposed, but you have a much greater sense of control of the vehicle than you do in a car. Did you find that to be true? Absolutely. You have to be, and I know this sounds kind of strange, but for me it's a type of yoga because you have to be 100% there. And I've also heard, and we call it when you're in a car, you're riding in a cage. (laughs) Um, But when you're on the motorcycle, you become part of the scenery because you feel everything around you. Mm. Um, And, and it's, and, and the other thing people always um, say is, Oh, I'd never drive, you know, in the city because people are crazy. You can almost predict what a crazy driver is going to do, but it's yes. actually when I'm out in the country that I've had more incidences because a big old, I think it was one of those um, turkey ball buzzards one time i'm in a group ride in the middle of nowhere and this bird comes swooping down actually hit my windshield left a mark and took off (laughs) had he not hit my windshield and hit me i probably would have been knocked off the bike you know um but i relate so much to motorcycling you know and again I, i think that i go back and kind of relate it to I took that risk with that scam, you know, just so much. But anywho, um, it took me after the scam, I was so devastated, both emotionally and financially. We have, we're, we're a riding group. And you get a charm for riding 10,000 miles within a year. And I ride at least 10,000 miles every year. Last year when my scam ended, for the first time ever, and I've been a motor bike again, you know, just... Anyway, but they almost took my bike away because one of the loans that I took, I put my bike up for collateral, Hmm. but I got that loan paid off for. Finding your power, getting your power back then. It's just getting that power back and and getting out there and doing that thing because that makes you happy. That makes you shine. And that's your happy spot. You know, we all have to find our happy spots. And I can hear it when you're talking about it, which is interesting because, you know, when I think about motorcycles, I go talk about limiting beliefs. When I was a kid, I worked at a hospital as a candy striper. lying in the hospital bed had been in a horrific motorcycle accident and I I equated motorcycles with that 
accident. And who knows why, but even you know, when Lou got his, I'm thinking, you're going to have an accident, you're going to have an accident, I'm going to see you with pins in your legs. And like you said, you know, if, if I had had a, a different experience with that as a child, I wouldn't think that because I've been on motor scooters in Bermuda and you know, around and they're a blast. Um, but I never experienced a motorcycle the way you have and the way a lot of my friends have where it's more freedom and it's getting out there and being part of the, like you said, being part of the, um, the, the situation and being part of where you're at. It's, it's really lovely. So get back out there and ride, Deb. Do it. I, I am. <laughs> Plan for that 10,000 miles. miles again. Get that 10,000 miles. Right. Well, I appreciate you all listening to my, um, my passion. That's Absolutely. really what it is. It's my passion. And I do need to get up on another call here. I'm okay. sorry I'm going to have to cut it short today. That's okay. Thanks for being with us, and thanks for telling us what you did. Tim, you got another one? Uh, well, yes. Let's see. <laughs> um, no, actually, when I joined the Air Force, it wasn't that because I, I was at a transition period in, in a career where I'd been let go or gently whatever from a law firm. And I was looking to see either I go to law school or I do something completely different. He did what? When I went into the Air Force recruiter, um, I spent all summer losing a lot of weight and getting in really good shape. Um, because I wanted to be the best I could be. And when I got in there and I jumped on the scale and the, the needle just kept going up and up and up and I'm looking at it going, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Um, and I turned around and I saw the recruiter's foot on the scale. I just about smacked him because I had been heavy as a kid and was very conscious of my weight at that time and scared to death that I would not get you know to the limit I or to the this the uh, pound or I'm having a stupor of thought here I could, I needed to be at a certain weight to be able to get in and when I right. saw that go beyond the weight that I knew I was I was freaking out thinking oh my gosh what's going on here and then when I turned around and saw that he had done that that his foot was on it I was like you did what <laughs> how did you do that why did you do that I said don't ever do that ever to anybody else again because it just brought out those insecurities about my weight. And uh, I really did want to hit him, but I think you can't, can't hit the recruiter if you're going into the military. <laughs> so, uh, but no one did say you did what because it was a really good career. At the time I was, you know, out of college and single and it was a great opportunity to meet a lot of men and, and it, was, it was a solid career for me. So, no, I did not get a you did what in a bad way. It was like, great, go for it. And I encourage well, people in, to do that. In my case, um, I was 17 years old, um, nearing my 18th birthday, well, about six months away, and facing imminent draft 
going into the army, being sent to Vietnam, and the result would have been less than spectacular. My dad was in the army during World War II. In fact, he was part of the um, the great march in the Philippines. So he spent a couple of years as a prisoner of war under the Japanese, came home, recovered, was sent to Italy, and then got his leg blown off in um, uh, invasion of Sicily. But so I decided to go into the Navy following into the family tradition because my, my ancestors are all sailors. Um, thinking nothing's ever going to happen to me in the Navy. I'm going to be on a submarine. What can happen in a submarine? Well, I got shot on a submarine, and I broke both my knees in the submarine. That's actually what got me out of the service. But it was definitely my dad who had an absolute conniption when I went into the Navy, thought that I was totally unsuited for it, that it was going to be a massive mistake, everything I was doing was wrong, uh, and of course, being you know 17 and a half years old when I enlisted, it was, I know what I'm doing. Well, truth is, no teenager knows what they're doing. Um, not sure that anybody actually knows what they're doing, but that's a different matter. So that was that was another one of my I did what, but interesting interesting eras in time, particularly uh, serving in the military. Uh, it was a far less professional era than it is today. It was one of those eras when it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the greatest generation era where it was all, everybody was aligned on a single goal. It was a time when nobody was aligned on any specific goal. But we came through that, and I think from a military point of view, uh, certainly the U.S. military, has become infinitely more professionalized uh, since that point in time. Oh, absolutely. Well, I see that with my, you know, my boys are and their wives are active duty. My nephew's active duty. It's it's become it's a way of life. And uh, right now, it's it it appears to a lot of people that it's dangerous, um, and it is. But you know, our our kids are so well prepared for what they do, and my but boys that are pilots love it. Hmm. Yeah, but most people don't understand that it's only a very small percentage of the military that actually is put in harm's way. The Absolutely. vast majority of it is is supporting the infrastructure. What is it, 92% that support the 8% that go out onto the battlefield? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a it's a world of its own. It's got the bankers and the HR people, and yeah, I've got the pilots, but we've got the mechanics, and we've got a, it's it is a true interesting way of life, and and it's been in, in my family for generations. Um, yeah. But you know, some people will say you did what, and I I actually have friends who when they're kids have chosen to go in the military, they'll call me up and they'll say, come and talk him out of it. Come and talk her out of it. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. It was a great way of life for me. And it's a great way to learn about who you are. And yeah, you get, you know, change of, you go in and you go to boot camp, or you go to uh, OTS, the officer training school, and you do get a mindset change, but it's, yes. it's on purpose. Yes. That's and what we, boot camp is for. Exactly, it's on purpose. And many kids, they need that mind change, <laughs> you know, to make them responsible adults. Um, well, I, you go know, ahead. 
now that we live in the world where we have a great deal of focus on helping to recognize high-risk behavior and helping individuals modify that, changing behaviors, etc. One of the areas that I've looked at is the boot camp experience and what it really is at its core. Has almost nothing to do with teaching people to march, shoot mm -hmm. guns, jump out of planes. It's all about changing core fundamental behaviors so that people can survive on the battlefield, that they can trust their training, that they can trust people around them, that they know how to react at an instinctual level when in a high-risk situation that civilians don't generally perceive. You know, what we're really talking about today is risk behaviors. And every area in our life that we could consider to be moderately safe is because we've developed behaviors to keep them safe. People spend months learning how to drive a car, but they don't spend a minute learning how to drive the Internet. And the Internet kills as well. And the same is true of most teenagers in their behaviors, um, whether it's in their relationships or anything else. They don't spend any time actually learning safe behaviors. It's all based upon emotional drivers and, and hormones. And the result is it's, it's an impulse world. And unfortunately, we as, as adults carry much of that impulsiveness throughout our lives, whether it's poor choices in selecting jobs or, I hate to say it, in, in, in mates and spouses or financial decisions or in the case of, of scams, who we befriend online. There comes a point when you have to take stock of the risks that you've taken in your life, which is what this conversation is really all about, and realize that maybe not all of the risks that you have taken or are continuing to take are really appropriate or it's not just safe. It's whether they're, they're conscious, whether you're making them consciously or whether they seem to be just happening and you go along for the ride. That's true, and I'm just sitting here thinking that we really, you know, we think being on the Internet because we're in the safety of our homes is safe, and we don't pay attention to what's really going on and the warning signs and the, the stranger danger. I mean, I was on an interview yesterday, and I was talking to, to women about being online, and I'm like, you look at these pictures, you think they're becoming your friends, and you just engage totally emotionally and many financially. And I said, they are strangers, you know, and that's what, that's the, yes. you did what? We don't think about that when we're, when we're looking online, we see these pretty smiles and, you know, the activities these people appear to be engaged in and think that, oh, they're just like me. And they're let not. Me, let me give you an example. Um, have you ever looked at the logs on your Wi-Fi router? No. Okay. So almost everybody has a Wi-Fi router in their home. 
And this is a device that we either buy or we get it from our internet provider or our cable company or somebody that provides the Wi-Fi that we all connect to, that we all take for granted. It's the 800-pound gorilla in the room that none of us even see because it's a little black box and we don't give it a second thought. So when you look at the router logs, you might be horrified by what you see. And it's really easy to see it because if you know how to just log into your router, and many people do or did when it was first installed because they set up a Wi-Fi password. Mostly when they come, they are you know, a 32-character, extraordinarily strong randomized password. And a lot of people say, well, make it Ralph my dog or something that they can remember so that everybody, friends and family, can let anyone who wants log on to their Wi-Fi. So when you actually look at it, what you find is as much as you use it, there will be more strangers trying to log in and break into your Wi-Fi than you are actually using it. And one of the reasons why Wi-Fi sometimes becomes extraordinarily slow is some 14-year-old somewhere in the neighborhood trying to war dial your Wi-Fi router and figure out your password so that he can gain access to your devices on your Wi-Fi. Because once somebody's in your network, they're on your network. And they have actually the ability to listen to everything going on that's not encrypted from the device out to the network. That's why VPN actually is very useful and why you have to make sure that you only visit websites that have the HTTPS mm. so everything from the browser is encrypted. But it is an example of a high-risk behavior that most people don't even know is high-risk. I didn't know. So, Tim, I'm going to task you with writing something up here and putting it out on, you know, even it, how to it, do that. Right. Well, it, it varies with the router. Being aware of it just means that you look at the documentation that came with each particular router, but it's pretty standardized. I'm not but sure I like, even have that paperwork. That's the thing, you know? There you go. You may not even know what the original system password is because you threw away the paperwork. Yep. Although usually it's printed on the side of the router. Right. So what a lot of people do is they tell their friends, oh, go look at the router and take a photograph of it so that mm -hmm. you can remember it. So the reality is we live in a world of high complexity, high risk all the time. Look at our passwords. We all hate passwords with a passion. <laughs> We'd like them all to be the same password for everything we do. And now we know that that's extraordinarily high risk, mm -hmm. that we should have, in fact, separate passwords, at a minimum, have one unique password for home banking, have one unique password for high-risk websites, a medium-risk password, and a low-risk password. But mm -hmm. the best thing that you could do is use a password manager like TrueKey from McAfee that was invented by Intel. It's what we at SCARS use. So these are examples of ways that we have to evolve and adapt. Survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. Risky behavior can result in extinction if we're not careful. And ironically, 
Nobody is paying attention to the risks. We're going into an election season, for example, and we're talking about mail-in ballots, but not one of the proponents of mail-in ballots has thought through the risk scenarios that are associated with it, like China printing up their own ballots, filling them all in, and dumping 20 million fake ballots into our system. <laughs> Nobody's even thought of that. Well, some have, but these are examples of, of the risks that we've allowed to become a part of our daily lives in, in a country, and it's so overwhelming that we just tune it out. Well, and we're, again, it goes back to the trust word. And until we've been taken by somebody or scammed in some way, we trust inherently. Um, after we get past the stranger danger of being kids, you know, we trust, and especially online, when we're looking at people, we're engaging with people, they become our yes. friends and we trust them. And that's when we but get they're into not trouble. Our friends. They're, just, they're just a stranger, no different than some weird guy that we pass on the street. I'm putting we friends in like quotation marks. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, because I, know, you know, it, it, when, when, when uh, you know, my kids say, well, this friend, and I'm like, if the, does a friend have a name? Because if the friend doesn't have a name, they're not a, they're not a friend. They're, no. they're a person that, you know, may take advantage of you, and they, they may be kind, but if they don't have a name when you're talking to me, then it's not a friend. One of, the, one of the critical lessons that we all have to learn in the modern age is that trust is an active thing. It's something that we should, with deliberation and, and purpose, extend. It mm. shouldn't be a passive thing that we just automatically assume trust, trust that we give or trust that we think we're receiving. Well, that's true because once it's broken, it's very, for me anyway, it's very difficult to get it back. It, it takes time and it takes deliberation, and it's not, not automatic. You know, and that's but the one that's thing the scam it, taught me. Right, but that's the way it actually should be, that right. you can extend a degree of trust, but when someone breaks your trust, it shouldn't be something that you just say, oh, well, it's fine. Well, but we've seen that, right? We've seen in, in the scam world that happens. The people that get taken yeah. more than once, they allow that trust, quote unquote, you know, to, to be extended to someone else very quickly. And that's, I think, the education that we try to get out there is, you know, be aware, <laughs> beware and be aware uh, that... Well, exactly. But it it is... It is an interesting thing when you look around at victims in general, um, specifically talking about scam victims, and we see the places that they are attracted to. Some of the places that they're attracted to are real organizations, but they're not actually involved in support and recovery. They're just talking about the words. They're, they're educating which is great if you're, if you're in scam avoidance mode. But unfortunately, victims don't understand the distinctions. And to a great extent, the same applies to the world of medicine. There are legitimate things that are beneficial. Certain vitamin supplements, absolutely. 
But the amount of quackery that's out there is off the chart. And the same is true in the world of, of, of scams, both from an educational point of view and from a support and recovery point of view. Um, there's organizations out there that do education, but they don't know anything about providing real support or recovery. I was noticing one very prominent um, organization that is a public-private partnership. And they use the word support even in their domain name, but they actually don't provide any support. It's mm -hmm. pure education. And when you go to their page for support, you see this word recovery, and there's a paragraph and two links. And one of the links goes to the Federal Trade Commission. They don't do anything in the way of support. Occasionally, they'll do a press release about some act, et cetera. And they do some, they do some avoidance education, but it's all governmentalized and mostly something that you can never assimilate well. And the other link was just to a list of the common types of scams. That's not recovery. Yeah. And there are these anti-scam groups that people go to that are either created by amateurs, victims who, sorry to say, believe that because they were a scam, they actually know something about both the victimology and the criminology of uh, cyber criminals, and they don't. And it's all about driving their own desires and motivations for revenge, or worse, their pages created by or groups created by the scammers themselves as a way of re-victimizing people. Hmm. Trust is this astonishing thing that after you've been scammed, you have to be incredibly stingy about it and not grant it to anybody passively. Yet we see this all the time, and we see this everywhere in society. You know, I think back to... Um, the books of Mark Twain, for example, which having a more normalized education, I actually read in school. <laughs> and, you know, you think about the books like Tom Sawyer and, and the others about how people treated each other with healthy skepticism. And people had to prove their trust in most of those stories. You know, you, the, the original scammer, Tom Sawyer, where he got all the other kids to paint the fence. Mm -hmm. um, perfect example of social engineering, by the way, <laughs> in an era before it even had a word. But it's, it's astounding how vulnerable we all are because of the cocoons that we live in, just like cars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe we ought to get on, on our motorcycles and be like Debbie. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we Freedom. ought to walk more. Well, you know, the, I, the, I did that yesterday. It's lovely. Uh, but you notice the difference about your observational skills when you walk versus when you drive. You're taking the world in. You're seeing all the minutiae, the, the small details, you know, the, the bird poop on the sidewalk. When you're driving, you're so not only buffered and cocooned from the outside world, but all you're doing is listening to the radio and you're only giving about 20% of your attention to the road, which ought to be the thing that you're giving 100% of your attention because <laughs> it's going to kill you. 
Yeah, but how many times do we get someplace and go, how did I get here? You know, it's mindless. Yes. You, just, you, yes, you go on autopilot. On you're on autopilot. Yep. And I was having this discussion the other day about, you know, when, when Lou um, was in the Air Force, he uh, was an Air Force intel intelligence officer, and he did a lot of, of training. Um, he was what well, we used to call him the super spy, but he did driver training. And he would tell the kids as they were learning how to drive, look at the right-hand tire of the car in front of you. That will predict where they're going to go. And situational awareness, know where you are, know where people are, be on the mark, you know, don't park too close or don't stop too close to the car in front of you. You always have this exit plan. And it was very interesting that the kids learned how to drive that way because it is so true. The only time Lou ever had an accident when he was sitting at a stop sign, not when he was driving yep. 100 miles an hour. Of course, I was sitting in the back seat scared to death that he was driving 100 miles an hour, but he was in control. He knew. He, the situational awareness was excellent, you know, but most of the time we get in the car, turn it on, expect it to turn on, back up, go forward, and just go mindless, you know, and that's when people get into trouble, and that's when I worry about motorcycles down here in South Florida because so many of the drivers are mindless, and that's like what Debbie was saying about being totally aware of where she is and what she's doing with her motorcycle. They have to be aware or they're going to get yeah. knocked off the road. So Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to assume the worst and plan for it mm -hmm. in order to survive on a motorcycle. I'm a, I'm a, I ride as well. Yeah. But if, yes. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. Love it. Uh, but I only ride in the deserts in, in Nevada and Arizona. Um, I don't not, have a bike here in Florida. Not in Miami? It, uh, <laughs> no. I had a scooter here in Miami. And I actually had to punch a car one day. Uh, I'm going through an intersection in South Miami, and I'm, I'm stopped at the stop sign, and, or excuse me, at the traffic light, and I have a green light. So I go out into the intersection, and this woman is creeping around. She didn't come to a stop on the red light, so she's just creeping around, not seeing me at all, and is within inches of, of hitting me, and I punch her truck. I put a big dent in it, actually. Um, and she's really upset. But I she'd bet. been a lot more upset, and so would have I if she'd hit me. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, sometimes but, we just have to get out of that, I was just going to say, the police officer that came gave her a ticket, didn't give me a ticket for hitting her car. He thought it was incredibly funny. I bet he did. I bet he did. It's funny. But sometimes we just have to do those things that people will say, you did what? You know, and uh, Tim, I, I appreciate your time today. We're going to cut it off a little bit short today. Um, but, you know, let's get out there and, and, and become uncomfortable for just a moment. You know, yes. Christy said something um, about the 80-20 rule. And we actually want to talk about this for a second, where we do... 20% of the things 80% of the time. We wear 20% of our clothes 80% of the time. And I started to laugh this morning because when I do the show, I typically put on the same blouse because it makes me feel like, you know, this is my show blouse. And this morning I said, change it up. Put on something different and go in a different direction. And uh, we got to do that. You know, we got to get out of our little cocoon and just do something deliberate today that's different than what we would normally do and if and if you can say I did what and it's a positive thing then go for it 
If someone Absolutely. else is looking at you going, you did what? And they're shaming you or they're blaming you. This is a time to not listen to them. You know, do something different. So, Absolutely. <laughs> guess what? My guest just sent me a message. And it's funny. It's a four-letter word beginning with S. And it's not spelled S-H-I. It's S-H-Y. So bless her heart. We're going to have to bring her back on another time because she's a hoot. So in preparation for Christy coming on our show next time, I want you to go uh, Google her or look on YouTube for Christy Rutherford, the Vision Finder. She is a hoot, and we will have her back on as a guest because you need to hear what she did and how it changed her life and how it changed her family's life and how she's changing women's lives around the world for good. So, Tim, thank you so much for being my sidekick today, for talking about things that we've done. Um, because I know it's going to make a difference in the world. We're going to get out there and we're going to live unapologetically and authentically and trust people that we know love and know. I'm going to bring that back there twice. Know, love, or know, like, and know. Uh, really know. And get out there and do something for the good. So, Tim, thanks again for being here. Appreciate you. Very welcome. Thank you to the and, folks and that... For anybody, anybody who wants to learn about scams and learn about scars, uh, visit againstscams.org. And if you want to report a scam, go to anyscam.com. We're here to help. Absolutely. And Tim, I want you to put something out about the router because I don't know how to look at the log and my log. And I'm very careful uh, about where I go online. But you never, like you said, you never know who's getting into your Wi-Fi because I did change my password. So Thanks, everybody, for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. Tim just gave us the information about if you've been a, a victim to fraud or you need to report a scam, report it to anyscam.com. Go to ic3.gov. Go to romancescamsnow.com. And check out the incredible information that SCARS, which is the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, provides for education and awareness. I want to thank everybody for being here on Stand Up and Speak Up. Join us every Thursday at 9 a.m. for another edition. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy hands and happy feet for those of you with neuropathy. Use the discount code STANDUP and get a 5% discount on all of your orders. So again, thanks very much for being with us today. Go out and have a great day and just ask, what did I do today? Have a wonderful one, everybody. I appreciate you being here. Bye now. Bye.